Good morning. Um, the, um, there's something that's very interesting to me that I have heard from other people and even seen a little bit um, before that sometimes when people get older and have issues with remembering family or friends, you can sing a song and all of a sudden they remember all of that. And they may not recognize the people that they've known for a long time, but they can hear a hymn and sing every word of it. And all of a sudden they're right there with you. And uh, you can even hear a song that you've loved in your past for years and years and years ago. And you hear that song and all of a sudden it, it takes you back to that moment. And you're captured in almost like you left your body and you went back back in time. And music has a great impact on your mind, on your emotions, uh, your memory. And it's very important what we do up here every Sunday in the church as we gather and as we sing. We are driving, hopefully, truths down deep into our heart and into our mind that will help us in, in other times. And today I want to look at the very first song that is recorded in Scripture. And uh, it comes from uh, the book of Exodus, and it's written by Moses. And we know a lot about Moses, and I'm not going to explain a whole lot about him. But he, uh, there are some things that I, I, I think are interesting. That he was, he was a Hebrew, and he was raised partly by his birth mother, but he was kind of by way of, she found him in the river, adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. And so he was also raised as an Egyptian. And so he had both cultures in one in his life. And he, he experienced both the Egyptian side and parts of the Hebrew side. And he spent 40 years in Egypt, and he saw an Egyptian uh, beating a Hebrew slave, and he killed him and buried him in the sand. And it came out that people found out about it, and so he fled to Midian, and he was there for 40 years, got married, had a family, and then sees this bush on fire, and God calls him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people, to deliver God's people. And um, reading through uh, the and studying through this, one man said that it could be up to a quarter of Scripture testifies to Moses' life and writings. That's interesting. Like, it's all throughout even the New Testament. People point back to Moses and point back to his writings and things like that. And in all of his writings, he actually wrote not one song, but three songs. And me being a, a music guy, that's interesting to me. He wrote Exodus 15, which we'll look at today. Psalm 90 and Deuteronomy 32 are all songs that he wrote. So he was a, a I don't know what you would call it, a artist, uh, so to speak. Um, but God had impacted his life very much, and he had put it down in song, knowing that song is very powerful. And while uh, Moses was in Midian, a different Pharaoh rose up. So we have one Pharaoh that came after Joseph that didn't know Joseph anymore. And then we have another Pharaoh that comes up after Moses is in, uh, in Midian. So now we're, we're really separated from the whole story of Joseph and how the Hebrews even came to Egypt. But Pharaoh did not like 
this huge body of people in his land. And so he, he put them into slavery and he forced them to do public works to build his massive buildings and things like that to kind of keep them in check. He even, you know, uh, decreed that the Hebrew babies be thrown in the river or killed. And that's how Moses was saved through that, that situation. But they grew so large that numbers record 600,000 men. And that was like of like 20 or 21 years of age and older. So if you count all the men younger than that and all the women and children, most people believe that the estimation is somewhere between 2 million and 2.4 million Hebrews in Egypt. So no wonder Pharaoh was a little concerned. They could rise up and take over. So he's trying to keep them in check. And part of the covenant that God had made to Abraham has come true. They are a large body of people, very large in number, hard to count because there's so many of them. But they were under a a foreign rule and they were in a foreign land. And so the whole covenant that God had made had not been fulfilled yet. And so people could see what, what God had promised, but saw him as a God who had failed at his promise. And they cried out to God, we're in slavery, you're not taking care of us, you're not helping us. And he says to Moses, I have heard their cry, and I'm sending you to go deliver them. And at the time that Moses writes this song, it's at the end of a whole lot of fantastic wonders that God had done in in Egypt to set his people free. And this is the last of the amazing wonders that he had done to set them free. And then Moses writes this song and they sing it all together after the the event of the crossing of the Red Sea that Pastor Stuart read for us a few moments ago. And as we look at this song, um, you know, a song usually has has verses and sometimes it'll have a refrain or a chorus or ideas like good songs are written for a purpose and they have a theme and then they have sub-themes that come in and, and uh, paint pictures for you through poetry and, and draw your attention to certain things that you may not pay attention to before. And this has been a very interesting study coming from somebody who enjoys music so much. And I hope that through this that we would all find this song speaking more than we may have thought it said before. People see about four verses in this in this uh, song, some people only see themes, and some people see uh, it broken up into two parts. And so I have kind of reviewed that, and what I'm going to talk about today is a conglomeration of all those. There are four verses, it is broken up in two parts, and there are themes. And um, to sum up this song in one sentence, I will say this, the Lord is the sovereign all-powerful God who saves and can be trusted to finish what he started. And that is the the summary of this whole song. The Lord is the sovereign, all-powerful God who saves and can be trusted to finish what he started. I'm going to use the word stanza for verse. If I use verse, I'm speaking of like 15 verse 1 or something like that. So if I say verse, I'm talking about the numbers in your chapter in your Bible If I say stanza, I'm talking about the song verse, if that makes sense. I'm trying to make sure that's clear. So the first stanza comes in 
at like 1b through verse 5. And the theme of this stanza is that the Lord is sovereign. And you kind of have to go back and look. The, the first two stanzas are retrospective. They look back in time at the event that just occurred. So they're not looking very far back. They're looking at what just happened. And then the last two stanzas are prospective, looking at the future in light of what just happened. And so this first stanza, he's looking back and, and seeing like it's still even right before their eyes. They're standing there seeing this. And I imagine Moses was writing it down or something. Somebody, hey, write this down like as, as we're, we're viewing this happen. And he's looking back to the event of the Red Sea. And the idea of God's sovereignty actually starts at their whole beginning at the Red Sea. In 14, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. He tells them to turn back, go back to, to this place at, by the sea, and not just travel by it, but encamp there. Hang out there for a little bit. And the people are following Moses, and they, they turn around and see Pharaoh's army coming, and then they're like, on this side is water. Like, an army or water? Death or death? <laughs> like, what do we do? And so you can see their, I can understand their fear, their concern. They're, they're afraid that why did we come here to this place, this place we can't flee from? And we know about Pharaoh, we know about his army, and we see that, as it says in chapter 14, that his best soldiers are coming after us. We might be large in number, but they're warriors. And so they're, they're afraid. And the sovereignty comes when he says, because of where you're going to stay, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And they turn from a sinful fear of man and distress in that part to at the end of that event, now it's a reverent fear of the Lord and they worship him. And they see, you see this contrast. It's a, a big difference. And they say this, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. He says, I will sing to the Lord. And they use a word for Lord that in your Bible, most likely it should be, all caps, Lord. And that is the Hebrew word where we get the word Yahweh from. And it's a verb. It comes from a verb meaning basically he causes to be or to exist. He creates. 
And in the song, you can see the Israelites begin to use this term that is very, very important. They are acknowledging that the Lord is the one who created them individually. He created them as a nation, and he has created their freedom by delivering them from the, the army that was behind them. We also use the word Jehovah or Adonai to substitute for Yahweh. And Adonai is the word that represented God in his special relationship to the chosen people. So when they say, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation, they are acknowledging him as their Lord, the one who delivered them. They have changed. He's no longer the the God of Moses back before the ten plagues. He's no longer the God that has now created more, more strife and more heartache in our slavery because Pharaoh got mad and took away the things that we needed to do our job well. Now he is the God who has delivered them. And he is the sovereign Lord. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they knew God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But that only proved his power. It did not speak of redemption that we see here with them talking about the Lord or Yahweh. Um, Here they worship Adonai or Yahweh for his triumph over Pharaoh, just as God said that they would do. And they worshiped him claiming that he was uh, my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my father's God. It's very personable, personal for them. They know him and they worship him this way. And they even call him a warrior. He is a warrior. He just defeated the, maybe the best army on the planet at the time. And they use the name which represents God and his special relationship to his chosen people. And this, this part of the song reminds me of a song that we sing here. We say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. They could have sung that back then, that the Lord had delivered them. And so I want us to think about in this, in this first stanza that the Lord will take a life who thinks all has been lost. It's all over. We're at the end of our rope. And he will bring them to a place where they can sing, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. And he will get more glory through that situation than if he had just done it all for us to begin with. The times where everything works well for me are the times when I am not so quick to praise God. The times when there is no way out and then all of a sudden deliverance comes or God makes something work in a different way, then God gets more glory because there's no way that I could have done it. Calvin said, we must observe that the help of God is conjoined with his praise because this is the end of all his benefits, that we should hold our salvation as received from him. And then we see the, as each of these stanzas do, there's a part that praises God and then a part that kind of narrates either what has happened or what's going to happen. 
And he says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And so they, they turn back to Pharaoh and they talk about his highly trained warriors who no doubt thought that they could have chased down the Israelites and corralled that huge large number into a, a place of submission because even though they were great, these guys were the greatest warriors. They were the ones with the weapons, the chariots, uh, the horses, and all of those people, they were just a people, basically. And the song repeats here that God cast them into the sea. He sunk the host of Pharaoh's army into the depths like a stone. You see the poetic nature coming out that cast them into the sea. He sunk them. They, they sank like a stone. And though they acted in their own power and under their own will, it was God who hardened their hearts to pursue and it was God who got victory over them in his sovereign plan. And then we come to the second stanza. The Lord is all-powerful. Beginning in verse 6, we read this. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So at the end of the first stanza, you have a a testimony of the floods covered them and they went down into the depths like a stone. At the end of this stanza, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. It helps us to see that there's a break here when it mentions this stone or lead, something heavy. But this is probably one of my favorite stanzas in the song. He calls out that the Lord, it is his right hand, O Lord, your right hand, and Moses, as he writes this, he's telling the people it was God's right hand that did this. And they're thinking, but we saw Moses' hands lift up. And he says, yeah, I lifted up. Moses was the visible picture of what the Lord was actually doing. And God could have made the waters rise without Moses waving his hand. He could have even made the waters rise like walls without the wind even blowing. But he shows, even in this, that he has power over creation, the water, the wind, the earth, and even over Moses, telling him what to do. And the Lord telling them, uh, telling Moses to raise his hand and then the waters obey, the, powerful, the power of the Lord shows that this is not just a natural event where all of a sudden the wind decided to blow when Moses raised his hand. I would encourage anybody to go outside and show me if you can do that. All of a sudden, you raise your hand and the wind blows. God was showing that these two things coincide. Moses is my man, and I'm working through him. And so as Moses raised his hand, as Moses was led by the Lord, the Lord worked. But not only is he powerful over the creation, he's also powerful in wrath and in judgment. In chapter 14, we see a couple of different pictures that that show both salvation and judgment as almost two sides of one coin. 
And the first example of this is when the water is separated and it piles up, it is a salvation for the people. They are able to cross over because the water becomes as a wall on both sides. And this isn't just like a little path like the row that we have here that we can walk through. This is so big. I mean, 2 million to 2.4 million people, that has to be a pretty big space to get them across in that time. And it took all night. It says it it was all the way till the third watch, which was 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. for it to even them to finish. And the water rising up was a salvation to the Israelites. But, as you know, when the Egyptians started to pass through, the Lord used what was salvation as judgment as he brought the waters back down onto the people. And we see that there's, there's even sovereignty in God's judgment and in his salvation. That he uses even the same thing to save and the same thing to, to judge. But we also see a second example, the pillar of cloud in, in chapter 14, uh, verse 19 through 20. It says that it, it moves from before Israel leading them to behind Israel to protect them from the Egyptian army. And it separates the two, the two peoples. But it says something that's very interesting. It says it gives light in the night. So on the Israel side, they could see. And it, it lit up the, the night so they could, they could go where God had sent them to. But on the other side, it was darkness, a blinding darkness. Um, in, uh, in verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And from that cloud in the morning watch, we see an awesome picture. It says that the Lord, um, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They knew this Lord. They had just seen 10 plagues demonstrated by this Lord. Oh no, he's still with them. You know, they're not just wandering out here in the wilderness. They're being led by him and he's fighting for them. Let us flee because uh, he's fighting for them. And we see what, what was a, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was a, a salvation and a help for the Israelites. It was a, a sign of judgment for the um, the Egyptians. And at that moment when they begin to flee, the Lord brings the water crashing down upon them in the sea. And then the stanza moves into a a narration again. And in verse 9, it says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And this is kind of in contrast to verse 2. Where the people said, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. Then you see the enemy say, I will, I will, I will. And one, one author said, if it had just mentioned, if Moses had just mentioned what the Egyptians did, it wouldn't have been as Im- impactful or powerful as to know what the Egyptians were thinking. For us to hear what they were thinking makes the judgment even greater. 
Because they arrogantly say, we are warriors, and I will have my fill. It's almost like a, a typical war cry that you see on a movie. Men, we will take this land. You know, like, they're like, I will do it. I will, I will get the victory. I will do this. And they, they think that they fight a human, a human enemy, but they're not fighting the human enemy. They're fighting God. The Lord is the warrior. He's Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. And remember that this stanza is about power, the Lord's power. And so after we see the enemy say all of these arrogant things and, and boastful things and beat their chest with pride, it says that the Lord simply blew on them and they were defeated, like they were paper soldiers. They weren't these tough military men when they fought God. They were no match for the power that he had. He simply blew with his wind and they were defeated. With their hot air, they prided themselves, and with his puff of air, he humbled them. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And here in Exodus, we see no chariots, no ultimate warriors, no chosen officers can stand against a simple puff of air from the Lord. He is the one that can crush the mighty with ease. Asaph says in Psalm 75, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And we, we sing this too. Uh, if I'm going to preach about a song, I'm going to look at songs that we sing to hopefully think that we sing right things. And we sing this too. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He, or our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, Doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle." Your enemy, the devil, pridefully taunts that you are no match for him. And it's true. He likes to arrogantly tell you how worthless you are and how bad you've messed up. And that's true. He even likes to tell you that there is no hope. But that's not true. For there is a sovereign, all-powerful Lord who has already defeated the devil, sin, and the grave. And the Lord is his name. There is hope, and it's found in Christ Jesus. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in my office at the ranch, I have this little, I mean, it's a little bitty plaque about this big, and it quotes probably one of my most favorite passages of Scripture from Exodus 14. When they complain to Moses and to the Lord, saying, you know, were there not graves in Egypt where we could have died, except you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us? And Moses says, um, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. 
God did not just separate them from the enemy. He didn't just push Pharaoh and his army back and say, don't ever come after them again. He destroyed, he vanquished the enemy. He did not say, your enemy, the Egyptians, will never come after you again. He said, they will not be able to come after you because they will not be alive to come after you. In his powerful wrath, he destroyed the enemy and Israel was set free from their bondage to the Egyptians once and for all. And who is like him? What God matches up to Israel's God? For he is the God who saves. He is Israel's strength, Israel's defense, and Israel's ultimate salvation. And stanza three starts off with that same question. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. And here it is. They are still as stone. And that's the end of that third stanza. We see the picture of stone or lead or stillness as a stone. The third stanza is the Lord is a God who saves. And they start with the the fact that no other God, lower G, can match up to the true God, capital G. And they had just come from a nation, from a, a country, from a land that had multiple gods. A god for almost everything, if not more than one god for everything. And if you think back to the ten plagues, God was sovereign and all-powerful in Egypt when he sent Moses to set the people free. And he showed that he was greater than each of those gods. And each plague that God sent upon the Egyptians correlated directly to a god that they worshipped in Egypt. The bloody water, plague number one, was against the god Nilus or Nilus, the sacred river god. Then the frogs was against Hect, the goddess of reproduction. Lice was against Seb, the god of the earth. Flies against Kephira, the sacred scarab, which was a beetle. Moraine, or the plague on the Egyptian cattle, was against Apis, or Opus, and Hathor, the sacred bull and cow of the Egyptians. Plague six, the boils on man and beast, was against Typhon, the evil eye god. Hail was against Shu, the god of the atmosphere. Locus was against Serapis, which was the god that was supposed to protect them from Locus. Darkness was against Ra, the sun god. And number 10, the death of the firstborn of man and beast was against Ptah, the god of life. God proved himself as incomparable. He basically battled each of these gods in Egypt and showed that he was victorious. He proved himself unique and set apart. And that's when we see Israel finally start to get it, maybe. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, majestic in your set-apartness? You are unlike everything, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And he is. No other gods can do what he has done. 
Now, think about what we said about the covenant. They had become a large people, but they were under a foreign rule and under a foreign land. And God shows that he is powerful to save them. He is sovereign in his leading them. And he, he shows them that, look, what's coming, I'm going to work out just as I have worked out what was behind you. And he tells them, like, this, this stanza is the one that's prospective. You're looking at the future in relation to what you've seen in the past. Because he is sovereign, because he's all-powerful, he's going to do what he said he would do. He's going to lead us, and he's going to guide us. And we see in this, in this passage that the event at the Red Sea did not only give glory to God from the Egyptians and the Israelites, but also from other nations in the path of Israel to the Promised Land. Those nations began to fear God who fights for the Israelites. And he is showing himself a promise keeper. The sea event at the Red Sea was a, was a pledge that God would fulfill his promise to give them what was ahead, the promised land. God redeems and he sanctifies and guides and he glorifies. The fact that he has saved you is a promise that he will continue the work in you until the final day where he glorifies you in the end with him. Steadfast love has brought them, steadfast love will lead them, and his strength will make it so. There's another song that we sing here. God, God, God moves in a mysterious way. And it kind of brings out these, these questions that we see at times. Sometimes the battle that is ahead seems bigger than you can pass through. And instead of trusting in the Lord and having peace, you feel fear well up inside you and you begin to question, God, is, is this the right way? Is this the road that, that you want me to journey down? Is this where you're leading me? And the song says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. But this, the author, William Cooper, acknowledges that we question sometimes. And he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God worked salvation in a supernatural act for a people that were powerless to help themselves. Nathan preached on this last week that, that those who went to Jesus and called out for, for their leprosy to be healed, they had to acknowledge that they were helpless to do it. They couldn't heal themselves. They needed his mercy, his strength, and his protection. And the Israelites were fearful at first when they saw that army coming. And they're thinking, God, we, we don't walk on water. What, what are we going to do? And the Lord's purposes ripened fast when Moses raised his hands and the water split. He was making his way for them. 
their salvation produced fear. Before, before they were saved, it produced fear in them. Their salvation led to praise and worship of them, but then put fear of all the people that they were going to meet. It put fear in their eyes. And this song actually mentions the people in the order that they would meet them. Philistia, Edom, Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan. And we see in Joshua chapter 2, Nathan mentioned this this morning, the prostitute Rahab tells the two spies sent by Joshua into Jericho, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The fear of Israel's God journeyed far in the land. All of those that were in the path of Israel were afraid. They're coming, and God's with them. And in this passage, we see uh, Moses uses many different words to describe their fear. Tremble, pangs, dismay, trembling, melting away, terror, and dread. All because of the greatness of the arm of the Lord, which leads Israel. There is no God apart from the Lord God. And you are either bought by him, or you are an object of his wrath. You either have cause to rejoice... Or you should be experiencing fear, dread, and terror. But there is hope. This God is the God who saves. All who come to him can find rest and peace for their souls. Mercy and grace. Peace which passes all understanding. And freedom from the chains of sin. You must simply believe in him. Believe that like the Lord fought for the helpless people at the Red Sea. And worked out a great salvation for them that the Lord also hung upon a cross and worked a salvation for a people who were helpless to save themselves. And his work at the cross is the greater work beyond measure for the salvation that he worked there is the one true salvation for all of time, which takes someone who is an enemy of God and makes them a child of God. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved, and that name is Jesus. He is the Lord. So ask yourself this morning, do you know him? Do you know his steadfast love which he demonstrated at the cross? Do you believe that his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave was for you in your place? You are helpless to save yourself, but do you believe that? Those he redeems, he is also faithful to lead to his holy abode his promised land. The Lord is trustworthy to finish the work which he began, which takes us to the last stanza. Stanza four, the Lord is trustworthy. In the second half of verse 16, it says, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. He says, till your people, O Lord, till they pass by, the ones you have purchased. And they sing this song almost as a, 
an encouragement, a pre-teaching for the future. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be rough, and you're going to have to fight an enemy that seems like is much bigger than you. But God has promised that he will complete what he said he would do. He will take you to the end. He will take you to the promised land. He will defeat those enemies that stand in your way. Just like he handled Pharaoh, he will handle those enemies ahead. He will bring his people to his place. And he has promised to plant them on his mountain, the place of his abode, the sanctuary which he has created. And so in this stanza, there's a simple application to those who trust the Lord. He has purchased you by his own blood. You were bought with a price. The enemy has been defeated. And if you are truly his, you will never not be his. He has purchased you, he is sanctifying you, and he is making you in his image. Even though the sanctifying might be a crucible that is hot, painful, and costly. And then in the end, he will glorify you and bring you to himself one day. He will bring you in, plant you on his mountain, the place where he is, the sanctuary which he has established. And then it ends with this statement, the Lord will reign forever and ever. His reign will not end. His reign is eternal. Pharaoh's was temporary. God's is eternal. The leaders of Canaan that they would meet, temporary, but God's is going to be eternal. Jesus shall reign forever and ever. And this, that point is very important to understand. The eternality of his reign means there will never be one who usurps his reign. No other person will rise up to take his throne. No other king will change the decree. The promises he made to the Israelites to bring them to the promised land could be, could be fulfilled because another ruler would never come and take the throne and change the plans, ultimately. God is always sovereign. And there may be a king change on the earth, but there's not a king change in heaven that is over all of creation. The promises that he made to his chosen people, his redeemed, his church, will also be fulfilled because there will never be another king upon the throne, the eternal throne, to change that decree. And God did punish the Israelites and did send them off into slavery for their uh, falling into idolatry and their not worshiping him as the true God. But he is still God. He has not lost his throne. And that's the point that this makes. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so to put your hope forever in the one who will reign forever, you should put your trust in the one who will always be there to fulfill his promises. Put your hope in, as the sentence at the very beginning said, the sovereign and all-powerful God who saves and can be trusted to finish what he started. So, in conclusion, I want, to, I want us to think about just as the song of Moses was a reminder of the redemption the Lord won for the people of Israel, that they sang it as a declaration to their kids of what God had done in the past and what he would do in the future, so we too should sing songs that remind us of the redemption the Lord won on the cross and the hope we have in the future. We should sing so that the coming generation would know the God that we serve, all of our kids in this, in this room with us now and the ones in there, we sing to let them hear those songs and let them gain a faith in that God. 
to see what he has done for us in redemption and to hopefully let the Spirit move in their hearts and bring them to that same place. We, we do sing these songs, and these are opportunities for us to proclaim, as Moses and the people did, our worship of the God who has become our salvation. We do this as a reminder to ourselves and as a testimony to those who do not know him. So as you sing each week, as you gather here in this building, don't think about, well, I'm not real familiar with that song or I don't really care for the way that one's done. If it's speaking truth, you can sing because someone sitting next to you might be listening and might need that encouragement that you might lift up with your voice, even if it's not in the right key. Because they need to see that you have hope in that same God. And that encourages their hope in that same God. As you sing, know that you are firming up your own hope in the God who has redeemed you and is still working to sanctify you. And you need to to remember that he will bring to completion the work he's begun in you. As you sing, you also encourage fellow believers to your left and right. So sing out. We sing to worship God, but know that even our singing is something that God has ordained to get glory from not only us, but all of those who hear and hopefully join the song. So we sing truth. We sing to proclaim the Lord's name, that he is the the sovereign, all-powerful God who saves and who is trustworthy to bring the promises he has promised to pass. Let's pray.